0: Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health/strangeplanet and use promo code strangeplanet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow.
1: This episode is brought to you by sax.com.
2: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
3: There are discoveries of human bones, human artifacts, and human footprints going back many millions of years, tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of years. So this is something quite different than is being presented to students in the educational system today, in high schools and universities around the world, it's really quite astonishing
0: reduce stress and enhance your immune system. ESS-60 from C60 Evo. C60 is the carbon-60 molecule known to deliver more than 172 times the power of vitamin C, 172 times. ESS-60 is the purest form of C60, a known antiviral, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory remedy that works. ESS-60 neutralizes free radicals from cell metabolization and external toxins to help minimize inflammation and maximize detoxification. Further, people report better sleep, more energy, and renewed mental clarity when they take our ESS60 organic oil. To order your miracle molecule ESS60, click on the C60evo link in the episode notes for this podcast or go to c60evo.com/richard-saratt e60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. Buy now and save 10% by using the coupon code EVRS at checkout. Again, use the coupon code EVRS at checkout.
2: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads.
0: Favorite American authors uh, was uh, a journalist as well. His name was Upton Sinclair, and he wrote about a hundred books beginning well over a century ago. He wrote a book called *The Brass Check*, which was a muckraking exposé of the world of journalism. And uh, in it, he publicized the issue of yellow journalism and what he called the limitations of a free press. And much of what he wrote in that book holds true today. And I, I think if Sinclair were alive today, he'd look around and say, not much has changed in the last century. Writing about, a, uh, about the, the Ponzi scheme that is the, the current financial order, he said, Wall Street had been doing business with pieces of paper, and now someone asked for a dollar, and it was discovered that the dollar had been mislaid. Sound familiar? I think so. He also said things like, fascism is capitalism plus murder. Something else he said that has always resonated with me, uh, particularly as I sit in this chair each week talking about things that challenge conventional wisdom, said Sinclair, It's hard to make a man understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Wink, wink. That is so true. And challenging conventional wisdom, upsetting apple carts, pick your metaphor, that's what we do here. Take conventional wisdom on the uh, evolution of modern man, for example. The story of human evolution began in Africa, we're told, about six million years ago, and it describes this very long process that our ancestors went through to ultimately become modern humans, roughly 150,000, 200,000 years ago. And this process, we're told, has been uncovered by studying fossils and understanding the underlying theory of evolution and while new fossils are uncovered occasionally and uh, every decade they reveal new chapters, scientists agree more or less about this basic story. More or less. But again of course this program flies in the face of conventional wisdom and so we're going to present to you a very different story of human evolution. Michael Cremo is a member of the History of Science Society, the World Archaeological Congress, the Philosophy of Science Association, the European Association of Archaeologists, and a research associate in history and philosophy of science for the Bhaktivedanta Institute. After receiving a scholarship to study international affairs at George Washington University, Michael began to study the ancient histories of India, known as the Vedas, In this way, he has broadened his academic knowledge with spirituality from the Eastern tradition. His book, Forbidden Archaeology, The Hidden History of the Human Race, which he wrote along with Richard L. Thompson, quickly became a best-selling underground classic with over 200,000 copies sold and translations in 13 languages. And, of course, the theme of that book and of much of his life's work, really, is to uncover and to present to the public a very different story of human evolution. And the concept, as startling as it may seem, that modern man has walked this earth, not for 150 or 200,000 years ago, but perhaps for millions and millions of years. Michael, how are you?
3: I'm fine, Richard. It's good to be with you and all your listeners again.
0: Your story of human evolution, I guess the Reader's Digest version, is what?
3: What the evidence shows is that humans like us have been present since the very beginning of the history of life on Earth. There are discoveries of human bones, human artifacts, and human footprints going back many millions of years, tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of years. So this is something quite different than is being presented to students in the educational system today in high schools and universities around the world. It's really quite astonishing.
0: Well, let's, let's run through some, some examples. Uh, I mean, you, have, you and I have talked before on, on other radio programs, uh, but this is going to be new to some of our listeners here tonight. Uh, let's, let's run through some of the more um, famous uh, cases of uh, archaeological anom- anomalies that, that uh, you talk about in Forbidden Archaeology, we're talking about artifacts that uh, were found in places they ought not to have been found in.
3: Yes, you're absolutely right about that, Richard. There are many cases like that. One of the really fascinating ones for me is the California gold mine discoveries. You know, In the 19th century, gold was discovered in California, and miners went there to get the gold. And to get it, they were digging tunnels into the sides of mountains in the gold mining region, uh, places like Table Mountains near the town of Sonora in California in the Sierra Nevada Mountains. So deep inside the tunnels in the solid rock, the miners were finding human bones and human artifacts. They were finding obsidian spear points, stone mortars and pestles, all kinds of stone tools and weapons, along with human skeletal remains. And These were found in layers of solid rock that modern geologists tell us are about 50 million years old. So these discoveries were reported to the scientific world by Dr. J.D. Whitney, who was the chief government geologist of California. His report was published by Harvard University. But we don't read about these things in the textbooks today uh, because of what I call a process of knowledge filtration that goes on in the world of science. If you've got evidence that supports the dominant theories today, it will pass through this knowledge filter very easily. But if you've got evidence that radically contradicts the dominant theories today, it, it gets filtered out, which means you don't read about it in the textbooks or hear scientists talking about it very much. So uh, that's, if this just happened one or two times, well, maybe you could ignore it. But what I've shown is that this has happened hundreds and thousands of times. So it's, quite a substantial body of evidence that's been swept under the rug, so to speak.
0: Well, one of the questions that you address is the question of sort of a school of of geology, a controversial one that's called cataclysmic geology, uh, which I guess critics might suggest uh, if that theory of cataclysmic geology is valid, it would, I guess, argue against It it might explain some of the things that you're finding. Uh, Can you explain what, first of all, cataclysmic geology is and why it may or may not uh, sort of, I guess, contradict what you're saying?
3: Well, by cataclysmic geology, we would mean the idea that there have been periodic catastrophes on a large scale in the history of the Earth and now this is something that even um, many modern scientists have come to accept. For example, they think that the dinosaurs were wiped out by an asteroid that struck the Earth about 65 million years ago. So some people might say, well, if there have been these huge catastrophes that perhaps they've mixed up the layers of the earth so that you know you have human skeletal remains that are really only a few thousand or a few hundred thousand years old that have gotten shoved down under uh, layers that are millions of years old so that uh, if we're talking about say the California gold mine discoveries we might be perhaps be talking about human bones and human artifacts that have just gotten mixed up in very ancient layers of rock because of these huge cataclysms that have taken place
0: right i mean isn't that isn't that a, a possible explanation for these these uh, anomalies that these are not well, millions of it, years if old if
3: it were if it were true in these particular cases that the layers of rock have been Disturbed, I think they would be a valid explanation. But in each particular case, you have to actually look and see: has the regular stratification of the Earth been disturbed or not? And this is something that geologists have understood for a long time. Dr. Whitney, uh, for example, uh, the chief government geologist of California, who reported these scientific discoveries to the world was aware of this problem and he he looked very carefully at the geological layers in the exact locations where these california gold mine discoveries were made and he could detect there were no fissures there were no disturbances of the geological layers in these particular cases so, uh, that would mean the discoveries are valid.
0: Every once in a while, somebody discovers these petrified shoe prints in strata supposedly, you know, two hundred and fifty million years old. That that happened in uh, Nevada, and then I believe there was a case in uh, Utah where they sort of upped the ante and they found an old shoeman, uh, human shoe print in Utah. Uh, about 260 million years old, supposedly. Um, can you add to that list, or what can you tell me about the, the shoe prints of, uh, of Nevada and Utah?
3: Well, the shoe print from Nevada was discovered early in the 20th century, in the 1920s, by uh, a mining engineer named John T. Reed, and you know, he was out prospecting, and he, looked, he was looking at the rock uh, beneath his feet as he was walking along, and he saw what, uh, you know, a, 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 not a footprint, but a, what appeared to be a shoe print in the solid rock. So he had the specimen analyzed with microscopes, and under microscopic investigation, it came out that the, the magnified images showed actually the, the threads of the soul where it was sewn. So it was really pretty a, a amazing discovery. Now what makes it so interesting is that The shoe print was found in layers of rock that belongs to the Triassic period, which is a geological period that goes uh, back uh, about 248 million years. So that's almost 250 million years ago. And there have been other cases like this of shoe prints being discovered. Uh, There was the one uh, from Antelope Springs in Utah. That was discovered by a fossil collector named William Meister. And he had been out searching for fossils. He was breaking open pieces of rock. And he broke open one piece of rock. And inside he found uh, the print of a, a shoe not a naked human footprint, but of a a footprint of of a shod person. So what made it really interesting is that within the shoe print, there was the crushed fossil of a trilobite, which is a kind of shellfish uh, that is characteristic of the Cambrian period, which is a geological period that goes back over... 500 million years. So my co-author, Richard Thompson, went to Utah and he visited William Meister and he looked at the specimen and took photographs of it and then we did a computer analysis of the shoe prints. We found that uh, they matched exactly uh, modern shoe print like if you're walking on a beach with a shoe on you and you know you would leave an impression in the sand the uh, shoe print that William Meister had was exactly like that and you could even see that the heel was worn just like you know if you've got a, a shoe you'll notice usually that uh, if you look at you know the bottom of your shoe you'll usually see that the heel is worn in a certain place so the shoe print that was discovered by William Meister had <clears throat> those exact same characteristics
0: Was he or anyone else able to tell based on the, the shoe print how this shoe may have been constructed what it might have been made of?
3: Uh there was more evidence for that in the in the Nevada print, which had uh, the it was so detailed that you could actually detect under magnification the uh, imprints of the threads by which the sole of the shoe was sewn to the rest of the shoe. In the case of the nevada i mean, in in the case of the Utah print, excuse me, there's not as much detail I mean it's obviously some kind of shoe print, but there's not as much of that uh, exact detail that was present in the Nevada print
0: All right uh let's talk about some of the Artifacts, uh, not necessarily, you know, uh, human remains, but artifacts uh, that have been uncovered. And one of the more famous uh, ones, and you've detailed it in, in Forbidden Archaeology, of course, is the discovery of these these metal spheres. Uh, I believe they were recovered in a mine in uh, somewhere in South Africa. Uh, tell me about the spheres.
3: Uh, at a place called. Otostal in the western Transvaal region of South Africa there's a mine where miners found deep in the earth deep, really deep down in the layers of the rock uh, these round metallic objects I call them metallic because uh, on analyzing them, when metallurgists analyzed them, they detected they were made of hematite, which is a naturally occurring type of iron. So that's why uh, I've described them as metallic. And the really interesting feature of these objects, which are sphere-like in shape, they're round, and they're maybe one or two inches in diameter. The the really interesting feature is the parallel grooves that go around the center of each object. There's a picture of one of them in my book, Forbidden Archaeology, that has three parallel grooves going around the equator of the object. And that's what makes them really interesting. Now, if if it could be shown that these things could have formed by a purely natural process, well, I'd be prepared to accept that. But at the present moment, I'm not convinced that such is the case, which means I think we have to be open to the possibility that some intelligent human-like being made those grooves. And what's interesting about these objects is they're found in mineral deposits, layers of rock that are over 2 billion that's not million but 2 billion with a B years old and I mean one idea that some people have suggested is well maybe these round hematite objects are there but somehow somebody took them and engraved the grooves on them uh, you know, when some metallurgists examined them when they were going to be filmed for a television documentary, uh, they concluded that they, they really didn't have any good natural explanation for the grooves. So uh, that's really pretty astonishing. And And, you know, I went to South Africa and I met the mining engineer from the mine where these objects are found, and he showed me a solid block of mineral with these round metallic objects solidly embedded in the rock and with, you know, like they'd be partially embedded, partially exposed and you could see the the grooves kind of going around the exposed surface of these uh, round-like objects uh, going back the grooves going back into the solid rock. Uh, so uh, so I've uh, actually seen these objects embedded in a big chunk of solid rock from the mine, and this was shown to me by the chief mining engineer from the mine a few years ago when I went to South Africa.
0: What, what so, happens to these uh, artifacts? Do they... Um... Do they go to a museum uh, where they, because they don't fit the the histiography, I guess, or the, the timeline, they're, they're, well, they're packed uh, away in a crate somewhere in the back room? What happens?
3: Well, Richard, in, in this particular case, the the object that I have in a photograph in my book, Forbidden Archaeology, was kept in the... Natural History Museum in Klerkstorp, South Africa. And the picture I got of it, and actually some specimens of, of a similar type of, of sphere, sphere were sent to me by the uh, director of that museum, a man named Rolf Marx. And <clears throat> uh, after... My book, Forbidden Archaeology, was published. A television producer from Europe got in touch with me and said uh, he'd seen the book, he'd seen the picture, and he wanted to go to South Africa to film the object. So I, I put him in touch with Rolf Marx, who was the director of the museum, where the object that is shown in the photograph in my book came from. And... Rolf Marx said that that object had been stolen from the museum. So sometimes things like that happen. Uh, I don't want to seem too conspiratorial about it, but those are the facts that were reported. The object was stolen from the museum. Now, in other cases, uh, for example, in the case of the California gold mine discoveries, those objects are kept in the Museum of Anthropology of the University of California at Berkeley, but they're not shown to the public. They're kept in a storage building several miles from the museum, and the average person wouldn't even know they're there. It takes somebody like me, who has dug into the history of these anomalous discoveries to, to even be aware that they're there <clears throat> so there are other cases like that as well that I've investigated I mean some people would think that this idea that there is strange stuff in the museum storerooms that the people, ordinary people can't see, that that's just something from Hollywood movies you know like Indiana Jones or something like that but it really is a fact that museums do have stuff in their collections that they aren't showing, that is really pretty amazing in terms of its impact on our understanding of the real history of our species on this planet.
1: This episode is brought to you by Saks.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe
0: If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive, commercial-free episodes per month. Plus, access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on gain access to premium episodes. Again, go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today?
2: In another reality, Richard is a very strong and handsome man. Just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day. and it was, uh, Good, good, a handsome man Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: Welcome back. Michael Cremo is with us. Forbidden Archaeology, the Hidden History of the Human Race... And this book really spawned waves of resistance and wonder amongst the scientific community when it came out. Over 900 pages, 900 pages of well-documented evidence suggesting that modern man did not evolve from ape man, but insisted, uh, or, but rather instead uh, has coexisted with apes for millions of years. Michael Cremo lectures to academic, popular, and scientific audiences around the world in a continuing challenge to Darwinian evolution. Uh, I I remember growing up reading about things like the Baghdad Battery. This was a uh, a clay vessel, and inside there was a a copper uh, cylinder. And inside of that was this oxidized iron rod, and, and the people who looked at it concluded it was some, some type of, uh, well, it likely would have been filled with some sort of an acid or an alkaline liquid, and, and it would have produced an electrical charge, a battery, 2,000 years ago. And then uh, I remember reading about the Antikythera mechanism, uh, which was found in a, in a shipwreck uh, off the coast of Crete back in 1900, and, and it had these differential gears on it, uh, amazing gears, which, I mean, that kind of complexity wasn't known to exist until the, the 16th century. Uh, and yet again, here was this amazing instrument, some 2,000 years old. Um, but now, I mean, if you consider what Michael Cremo is telling us, that modern man has existed on Earth for millions and perhaps billions of years, suddenly the Baghdad battery and the Antikythera mechanism uh, well, hey, what's the big whoop about that? Uh, I want to go back to talking about what happens to these, these artifacts. And uh, you say some of them are stored off-site in, in museums. I'm trying to understand what, what is the danger? Uh, why, aren't, why isn't there uh, a, a, an open dialogue uh, and display of these items? What, what's the threat here? Uh, to the the established order, Michael?
3: Well, you know, there's, uh, I I think, a lot of factors involved in, in, in this. In one sense, you know, it's just like human nature. You know, for example, if I love somebody and somebody tells me something bad about the person I love, I don't want to believe it. I may become angry at the person who tells me. So many scientists today they're very much in love with their theories and when they hear something that goes against them they don't want to believe it i mean so that's part of it and then i think part of it is also power you know there are different kinds of power in the world there's uh... military power there's economic power there's political power, there's also intellectual power, which is a very subtle power, but a very real one. And we see that those who have power, uh, generally those who have monopoly power in particular, don't like to give up their positions very easily. So for the past 100 years or so the supporters of the Darwinian theory of evolution, including human evolution have had a government enforced monopoly in the education systems around the world. So you know, it's like if one political party has a monopoly in the political life of a city or a province or a state or a country, you know, it doesn't want to give up its position very easily or if a corporation has a monopoly in a particular sector of the economy, it doesn't want to give up its position very easily. So similarly, if there's a group of scientists that has a monopoly in the scientific institutions and the education system, then they don't want to give up their position very easily.
0: And, uh, you know, Michael, for, for the... I'm trying to understand, for the materialists, for those uh, who subscribe to uh, to Darwin's theory of evolution, I'm trying to figure out what difference it would make to them if we were to roll back the timeline uh, from mo- the appearance of modern man well, from, 150, next- sorry, from 150... Sorry, from 150,000 years to several million years. Uh, you know, what difference would it make to the materialist?
3: Well... That, that's an excellent point, and I think that's what's really at stake here, because if humans actually have been here for hundreds of millions of years, as I'm proposing, then that means we need new explanations for where we came from. And the explanations we're getting now are very materialistic. We're being told we're just machines made of molecules in competition with each other for survival. And the alternatives, especially the alternatives that I'm proposing and that others are proposing, tend to involve some non-material principles. The idea that Uh, We're not just machines made of molecules in competition with each other for survival. There's a conscious self that exists apart from matter. I talked about this in a, a book I wrote called Human Devolution, where I propose, as conscious beings, we haven't evolved up from matter, as most scientists now say. Rather, we've devolved or come down from a level of pure consciousness. Matter doesn't produce consciousness, but... Consciousness can become associated with matter and covered by matter, and the real purpose of human life is to restore consciousness to its original pure state. So if ideas like that were dominant, this would be very bad for the political, financial, and economic systems that are now ruling the world, because our sense of identity determines our goals and our values if you tell people you're just evolved apes you're just machines made of molecules in competition with each other for survival then what will they do their goals will become very materialistic they will think that to produce and consume more and more material things is the main purpose of human life and they're going to do it by dividing themselves into competing groups and struggling very hard and it this whole process generates tremendous amounts of wealth which flow into certain pockets and there are a lot of forces in the world that just want to see that continue they 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 wouldn't like to see people le- living more simple and natural lives and putting more their human energy into developing the resource of consciousness. That would be bad for business, that would be bad for politics, that would be bad for the financial institutions. They would rather have everybody just producing and consuming more and more material things and generating all this wealth that flows into the pockets of those who are... Controlling and exploiting and controlling the whole system.
0: I, I, I hear you on that one for sure. Now, but uh, and you're you're coming at this uh, from uh, you are a, uh, a member of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. So your worldview is informed by Vedic creationism. So could you could you explain then how Vedic creationism uh, is? Informed by or I should say perhaps the other way around, how your 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 theory about the origins of of um, modern man uh, going back millions of years, how that squares with or informs Vedic creationism. what is Vedic creationism? I guess is what I'm asking
3: well, this is I mean Veda is a word that means knowledge, and knowledge spreads all over the world really so the kind of concepts that i'm talking about they can be found in most of the ancient wisdom traditions of the world whether we're talking about uh, native american traditions or australian aboriginal traditions or judeo judeo-christian traditions or buddhist or whatever it, it's these are some common features of the different ancient wisdom traditions and I've found them expressed in the Vedic tradition of India so I've kind of focused my efforts on that but I'm not claiming to have a monopoly on these ideas I think they can be found pretty widely throughout the world and the basic message is that there is a non-material essence to things, a non-material essence to living things. There is some higher intelligence that is responsible for the order and complexity that we observe in the universe around us, that everything has a source and that that source ultimately is conscious. It's not simply material. And I think this has implications for the kind of civilization that we could live in if uh, we think we're all beings of pure consciousness, we're all related to each other, we wouldn't be dividing ourselves into competing groups and fighting with each other over control of material resources. We would be thinking we're all in this together. Let's try to Provide the material needs that we have in the most simple, natural, efficient, and fair way possible and 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 let's put most of our human energy into developing the resource of consciousness and not over exploiting the material resources and destroying the environment as we're doing now we're poisoning the air. Poisoning the land, poisoning the water. So, I think if we had a civilization that was based on these higher principles, it would be much different than the world we see today. It would be a much more peaceful place where we would be looking at the unity of all living things rather than dividing ourselves into so many competing groups. And it would be a world where there was more environmental harmony because we wouldn't be exploiting the material resources to the extent that we're doing today and causing so many ecological problems. So I think that's what's really at, at stake here
0: what the vedic texts uh, that we hear so much uh, about the, uh, the bhagavad gita and so forth uh, some of the oldest perhaps the oldest uh, written texts um in existence the, but they the, there are there are clues in those in those uh, texts about um ancient civilizations in possession of incredible technology, perhaps even nuclear weapons. We remember, of course, uh, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, the, the father of uh, the atomic bomb, quoting from the um, Vedic texts after the, uh, the, uh, the first atomic bomb was, was tested, and he was asked sort of off-microphone, or he muttered off-microphone when asked, is this the first time an, uh, an atom bomb has been exploded? And he said yes, and then he muttered sort of off-microphone uh, in modern times. Uh, what can you... We just have a few minutes here, but what can you tell us about uh, clues in the Vedic texts that, that ain't the ancients had incredible technology?
3: Well, you mentioned uh, one of the elements of that. they They had their... Uh, they had command of weapons that were really pretty amazing. But uh, there are also descriptions that they had flying craft, including spacecraft. There, the Sanskrit word for them is vimanas. And, you know, there are elaborate descriptions of these vimanas or spacecraft and aircraft. There are descriptions of uh, vast beautiful cities that existed millions of years ago. There are accounts of, of uh, scientific discoveries. For example, they knew how to calculate time according to the movement of atoms. Of course, in modern times, we've redeveloped that technology. We have atomic clocks. So there are descriptions of these things in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India that are really pretty amazing. And it's actually in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India where I first encountered the idea that humans like us have been present for many millions of years on Earth. That's what actually inspired me to do the research for forbidden archaeology to see if there was any archaeological evidence to support that idea.
0: Uh, I, I believe the Vedics uh, were referring to something they called iron thunderbolts. Is this what Oppenheimer believed was uh, an atomic blast in the ancient times?
3: Well, the, I think he was referring to something else. There was a weapon called a brahmastra, and its effects were compared to having millions of suns all together in one place at the same time uh, which is pretty much what happens when there's a nuclear or thermonuclear explosion it's sort of like if you were to bring you know the the sun and all its nuclear activity to earth that's what it would be like so the uh, so i think he was referring to a weapon called the Brahmastra. There are other weapons that are described as being like thunderbolts, and they appear to be more like energy beam type weapons. Uh, There's a description of an attack on the city of Dwarka in ancient India by a a flying machine, a, a huge flying craft that came from outer space that was Shooting down some of these thunderbolt types of weapons or energy beam weapons. So there are de- there are descriptions of such things.
0: And again, the Vedics were writing about uh, these weapons uh, existing in what what time period?
3: Well, this uh, would go back anywhere from five to ten thousand years ago to millions of years ago. Uh, there are. Yeah, you know, the histories deal with these vast periods of time, and the descriptions of, say, for example, the uh, spacecraft or aircraft. Uh, some of them go back millions of years. The one I was talking about about the attack on the city of Dwarka that's from about five thousand years ago.
0: Unbelievable, Michael. What is it going to take for some of these amazing? archaeological anomalies, to make their way from the crates in warehouses into the museums? What's going to have to happen?
3: Well, more of what we're doing right now, putting the information out there and uh, getting uh, some popular demand for these things. And to some extent, uh, it's already happening a little bit. You know, I'm speaking about these issues at scientific conferences. Some of my papers are getting published in peer-reviewed scientific publications. So little by little, uh, some progress is being made, but we've got a long, long way to go. And I think what we need to do is get some changes in the education system to allow alternative ideas to be more openly expressed in the public education
0: system. Amen to that. Forbidden Archaeology, The Hidden History of the Human Race. Michael Cremo, great pleasure. Thanks for your time tonight. I enjoyed it.
3: Thank you, Richard.
2: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now.